Oh, Lord, we thank you that this part of our service is not where worship ends. This part where we sit under the teaching of your word is every bit as much worship as when we're singing songs together, as when we're singing hymns as a church. Lord, this is every bit as much worship as that is. And so, God, I pray that as I uh, share your word today, Lord, that you'd help me to do that faithfully. Um, Lord, that I would do so truthfully without any uh, hidden agenda. But, Lord, that I would just preach the word as it is. And, God, as we do hear your word, that the focus would not be on any man or any woman, but on Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray you be glorified, glorified today in the preaching of your word, and that nobody else receives that glory other than Christ. And God, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you might come today and touch our hearts afresh with a sense of glory in the cross, glory in what has been accomplished through the cross on our behalf. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, our word today is part of a, a four-part series which focuses on the Easter message. And that's going to run from this Sunday to next Sunday and then Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And in today's sermon, I'm hoping to take a look at the cross from kind of 20,000 feet, so to speak. We're going to be zooming out, and I plan to try and bring in as many texts as I can uh, to try and help us to get a perspective on the cross. You see, uh, my message today is we don't understand the cross because we don't understand sin. We don't understand the cross because we don't understand sin. And I hope through bringing into play lots of biblical texts that by the end of this message, we are going to have the cross in focus. We're going to have the cross in focus. And let me tell you, this is something that has been happening for me more and more over the years. You might think that it's kind of a morbid fascination to talk about sin in church. But I actually think it's the lack of talking about sin that actually contributes to our ignorance uh, about the cross and actually it contributes to a lack of worship because we don't talk about sin I remember a few years ago I did a sermon called the s word sin right and um, the reason I did that is because the subject has become taboo in large swathes of the western church and then we wonder why we can't generate excitement in our hearts when we think about the cross have you ever found that I'm being really honest with you here but growing up as a Christian when we'd come to Easter time and we'd think about the cross of Jesus Christ, I knew it was significant, but I couldn't, I just couldn't feel anything in my heart. I couldn't generate any kind of emotion or passion when I thought about the cross. But I saw that it was important and I saw lots of other Christians, they talked about the cross, they talked about Jesus and what he did there. And I would be thinking, what is it about the cross that these people get so excited about? I just don't. I'll be honest, I don't really get it. So I tried to focus on the physical pain that Christ endured. And I thought, yes, that would be bad. And so that, sometimes, if I thought about what Christ endured physically, that would generate some feelings of emotion and passion in me. Um, but that, brothers and sisters, is not truly what we celebrate when we look at the cross, is it? And, and, I, and I hope today, as we look at the Bible and we look at what it presents to us about the cross that this isn't just a message where we're going to morbidly focus on sin. I want you to see that, okay? 
If we don't look at sin properly, we're not going to see the love of God. If we don't focus on the holiness, the wrath, and the judgment of God, we're not going to see his compassion, his grace, and his mercy either. You see, in the cross, God is not switching off one of his attributes in order to display another. He's not switching off his wrath in order to display his love. Equally, he's not switching off his love in order to display his wrath. When we look at the cross, we are getting the clearest view in all of human history of all of the attributes of God at play in one single event. It's glorious. It's wonderful. But if we try to approach the cross and shut out something that we don't like or we don't find palatable, we're not going to be able to worship God fully for what he did there. I hope that makes sense to you. And because it's become unpalatable to talk about sin, to talk about judgment, to talk about wrath, we're therefore as a church lacking in our worship to God. We lack in our gratitude for what Christ did at the cross because we don't fully understand what he did. Does that make sense? So we're going to try and draw from Scripture. That's all we're going to do. And I think by the end of it, I'm hoping that the cross is going to be in greater focus. You're going to see it in technicolor, not in just in monocolor, okay? Now, I want for us to just think for a moment about how ubiquitous, how far spread that image of the cross is in the world. You can't avoid it, can you? You walk around town and you see people walking around with pendants with crosses hanging on it or earrings with little crosses in or on tattoos. I remember I was in a band as a, as a young man and the lead singer of our band had like crucifixes tattooed all over his body. It's all over the place. The world is really familiar with the image of the cross and so are our churches. You know, we, we have a huge cross right here. Every Sunday, we see the cross everywhere in church. But our understanding of what it means is paper thin. It's paper thin, even in the church. Our understanding of what that means is woefully thin. For starters, when we see a cross everywhere in the world, on jewelry, on tattoos, think of how weird that is. Think of how strange that is. What was the cross? It was an instrument of torture, a brutal instrument of torture. So wearing a cross around your neck is akin to wearing an electric chair or a guillotine around your neck. Strange, isn't it, when you think about it? Nobody does that. And if people did do that, if you did see somebody wearing an electric chair around their neck, you might suspect there was some kind of sadist, and you'd probably be right. So how is it? That this instrument of brutal torture, the cross, has become a symbol of hope in our world. How is it that this brutal instrument of torture used by the Romans has now become a symbol of hope worldwide? Well, we know that it's got nothing to do with the cross itself. It hasn't got anything to do with those two pieces of wood. It's got everything to do with one man. It's got everything to do with one man, Jesus, who was crucified in that way over 2,000 years ago. He's the only reason why the symbol is known the world over. And it's the cross that is the very center of all true Christian theology and worship. Without it, we don't have good news to preach. We don't have a gospel. 
The cross is where we most clearly see God's attributes on display. It's where we really catch a glimpse of his glory, his holiness, his love, his mercy, his grace, his wisdom, and his righteousness. It's at the cross we see those things most clearly. And as I say, most people tend to see the cross in monocolor, not in technicolor. They'll say, ah, the cross is about God's love. The cross is all about the love of God. And we want to say yes and amen to that. But equally, the cross is also about other things. And if we miss those things, we exclude those things, we're uncomfortable with those things, we're missing out on an opportunity to glory in God. The sad fact is, brothers and sisters, that the cross of Christ is one of the most neglected subjects in all of the Western church today. Isn't that sad? Many have grown tired of hearing about this subject. I think many of us have thought that the cross kind of passes its use-by date as soon as we become Christians, right? Yeah, there's a purpose in preaching the cross when somebody's not saved. You know, they need to know about the cross. They need to know that their sins are forgiven. But once you're a Christian, you know, we can move on to the more interesting things. We've got all sorts of things we could occupy our time and attention with after we're saved. And the cross sort of becomes redundant. We don't really know what to do with it. We bring it out once a year at our Easter service when we've got guests. But other than that, we, we don't really see a place for the cross in our everyday worship. But I think that the cross is something that we're never going to be able to plumb the depths of in this life. Because it's both simple in that a child can understand what the cross stands for, but it's also complex. There's a depth to the cross that we'll never fully understand with our minds in this life. But I think... We have to understand that in this day and age, we have an attraction to the bright, shiny things. We have an attraction to the things of God, the blessings of God, healing, supernatural signs and wonders, giftings and identity, which are good things. But I think we've sort of lost our taste a little bit for learning about the cross. Now, I think part of that is that we, because we've lost our interest in learning about it as a church, we've sort of tried to boil down the cross into simple truths, you know, little truisms. And we'll say something to people like, well, you know, Jesus loved you so much that he died for you. And, and okay, there's truth in that. You know, he loved you so much he went to the cross for you. But I want you to think for a second about how weird that sounds to somebody who doesn't understand all the other things that are going on here. I always used to think that when people say that to me. Jesus loved you so much, he, he died for you. And I thought, why would he die for me if he loves me? My mum loves me, but I'm not expecting her to die for me. <laughs> right? It makes no sense to someone if you say that, unless they've got all the other background information. Plus, why would somebody dying 2,000 years ago make any difference to somebody living today? Think of that. Somebody's heading through town, down Dudley Street on their way to Primark. Jesus died for you because he loves you. They're interested in getting a cheap pair of skinny jeans. They've got no clue who Jesus is 
why him dying has got anything to do with them and how it could have been of any benefit to them at all. The question they've got is, is this Jesus going to give me more money to spend in Primark? Is this Jesus going to heal my back so I can carry more bags coming out of Primark? Because if so, I'm interested in that Jesus. I'm not interested in a Jesus who shed his blood for me. Why would he need to do that? And you can see then how the church has gone way off the rails because they've realized something. They've realized, oh, these people on the streets, we can get them in if we tell them about the Jesus who can get them a BMW. We can get the the seats filled if we tell them about a Jesus who's going to make their body whole, who's going to put more money in their account. They don't seem to like this message about blood and sin and judgment. So we'll just put that on the D-low, right? It's about healing. It's about blessing. It's about love. Those things are true. But if we miss out on the rest of the cross, people will not understand it. Our problem here in the West is that we think everything revolves around us. We're convinced that we're the center of the world, aren't we? We're forever trying to get free of that thought. Every day I have to battle this. I wake up in the morning and think life's about Graham Phillips. And then I open the Bible and realize it's not. And for a moment I have to grieve and pity myself that the world doesn't revolve around me. Anybody else or just me? Come on. We grow up thinking the world revolves around us. And so we begin to ask questions about things outside of us, like, well, how does this relate to me? How do I feel about this? What's my truth concerning this? What's my opinion on this Bible verse? So when we come to think about Christianity, when we come to think about the cross, we think of it from a self-centered perspective. And these aren't bad questions to ask. What does this mean to me? How do I feel about this? What's my opinion on this? They're not bad questions. But it's like starting to button up your shirt using the central button. right? You don't do that. You start from the top so that you don't miss one out. We have to start with the important things. We don't start with us when we think about the cross. We don't start with how we feel, how that relates to us. We have to start with God. Because you're not the main character in the Bible. God is. You're not the main protagonist in this life. The Lord God is. Amen? And since God is God and we're not, we've got to start by understanding who God is. The questions we have to ask about Scripture are not, what does this mean to me? The first question we have to ask is, what did God mean by this? We have to start with Him. So we've got to begin with the fact Before we ever think about how does the cross relate to me and what does this do for me, we've got to start with this fact, and that is simple. It's just that God is God. God is God. He's the creator of the heavens and of the earth and everything in it. And because he created it all, he gets to rule over it all. I tell you this, this is one of the most profound truths in the whole world, but we totally underappreciate it. God is God. That means you're not. God is God and you're not. Amazing. Profound. 
He is God. He created everything. And that means he created me. He created you. He creates every single person living in this world. Whatever they believe, God created them. He made them in his image. They have an inherent value and worth because of that truth. But equally, God made them. And so he gets to determine how they should live. Just as he measured out the seas and said this far and no further, he gets to set the standard for how every single one of his creatures is to live. That's his prerogative as the creator of the universe. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. God never does anything that doesn't please him. Did you ever think of that? He does all that he pleases. We have to acknowledge that truth. Moreover, we've got to acknowledge what the Bible says about God over and over and over and over again. And it's this. It's the awful, blinding, incandescent truth of the holiness of God. The holiness of God. I can't unpack this as much as I'd like because I don't have time. But I want to talk a little bit about the holiness of God today. Because there's one thing that the Bible will not let us get around It makes it more clear than any other attribute that God has in the Bible and its holiness. In Revelation 4, we see these four living creatures around the throne. And what do they cry out? Lovely, lovely, lovely? Mighty, mighty, mighty? No, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. He's the thrice holy God. In Isaiah 6, Verse 1 to 7, we have this amazing encounter that the prophet Isaiah has with God. And I want to read it, just take a moment to read it together. Because this again talks of the God who we worship. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What was the first thing that Isaiah became aware of in the presence of God? It was his sin. It was his sin. That was the first thing that struck Isaiah when he was in the presence of the throne room of God was, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. It was his sinfulness that struck him to the core when he stood in the presence of God. Why don't we talk about this in church? Why don't we sing about this in church? When he stood in the presence of God, He was struck down by God's absolute holiness. So much so that he trembled. Woe is me. 
Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. Oh God. When was the last time that we became aware of God's absolute holiness? And our need for Him to do something for us. Just to stand in His presence. Just to stand in the presence of God. Isaiah needed that coal to touch his lips. He needed God to deal with his sin. And we think we can just rock up into the presence of God as we are. We say, come as you are. God loves you just as you are. No, God loves you just as Christ is. The only way God loves fully anyone on this planet is through his son. Because your sin must be dealt with. Otherwise, we stand just like Isaiah. Woe is me. Not because God's mean. Not because he's unloving. Because he's perfect. And you're not. It's not just that God is morally perfect. That's just one part of his holiness. It's that he's perfect in every conceivable way. He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in his righteousness. He's perfect in his judgment. He's perfect in his wrath. He doesn't diminish his love in order to be wrathful. He doesn't switch off his justice in order to be loving. He's all of these things perfectly, all at the same time. And he cannot switch off his justice so that he can let sinners off the hook. He cannot do it because it would be violence against his own character. And because we don't really glory in these things, we don't really talk about the majesty and the holiness of God, but we're more concerned about ourselves in this day and age, we don't really understand the gravity of what it means to sin. Does that make sense? Because you're not confronted with the might and the power and the holiness, the beauty of God every day, you don't really understand what it means when you sin. David said in Psalm 51, you ever read that psalm? He said, against you and you only have I sinned. We like to think of sin as a little thing. It's when we slip up, you know? We like to talk about the cross in this day and age like it's, You know, it's God trying to heal our brokenness. And there's truth to that. Let me tell you, there's truth to that, but it's not most often how the Bible talks about it. You don't sin because you're broken. You sin because you're a sinner. We like to think of sin as just a little thing. It's just a mistake. You know, when I lied about that person or when I told my friend and gossiped about that other person, it's just part of who I am. It's It's just one of those things. I'm working on it, right? Do you know what R.C. Sproul called sin? It's cosmic treason. Cosmic treason. Because we live in God's world. And every time we break his design for our lives, every time that we divert from his design, when he says to his people, be holy even as I'm holy, when we decide we're not going to do that, guess what? It's rebellion against the God of the universe. It's telling God, I know better than you. Even the smallest things. Remember, Adam and Eve, they brought a curse upon the whole of mankind. Not by murdering someone, but by eating fruit from the wrong tree. 
They disobeyed God's word. That's, that's all it took to bring a curse on the whole of mankind. But I don't think we think about sin that way, do we? We, we trivialize it. We make it a little thing. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity. Listen to that. Any want, any lack of conformity at all unto or transgression of the law of God. You know, we might think, well, I've never killed anyone. You know, I've never committed adultery. But what did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? What did Jesus say about the greatest commandment? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Do you know what he said the greatest commandment was? For all mankind. It was to love the Lord your God. With all your soul. All your mind. And with all your strength. Listen, nobody here in this room has been able to do that for one day of their lives. No one. You know it's true. Not even one minute of your life have you ever been able to love God as he deserves to be loved. Guess what that makes you? A sinner. Guess what that makes you? A man or a woman of unclean lips. It's any want of conformity to God's commandments is sin in God's eyes. We know that Romans says the same thing. Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, no, no one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one is good. And God takes sin personally. He's holy. Every sin, as I say, is an act of rebellion against him. I'm going to... I'm going to have to read some of the most uncomfortable verses in Scripture because nobody else will. Psalm 5, verse 4 to 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Do you know what that is right there? That's a verse that tells you that your God is holy. And David thought that it was worth rejoicing in. But I wonder how few Christians today can rejoice in that verse. Psalm 7 verse 11 to 13. God is a righteous judge. A God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, that is, if the man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword, he will bend and string his bow, he has he is prepared deadly weapons, he makes ready his flaming arrows. Goodness me, this is your God. And this is how he thinks about sin, and in particular about sinners. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
You can see now, can't you, how seriously God takes sin. And how God's people throughout the ages have understood this. And I'm telling you now, this revelation of God's absolute holiness and our absolute sinfulness has been the center of every revival since the early church. And whenever the church has let go of our deep sinfulness, that revelation of our absolute reliance upon the grace of God, whenever the church has decided to forget that or devalue that, not preach that, not think about that, it's fallen into apostasy every time. Every time. We need a fresh reformation, church, in this day of these doctrines and these truths. You know, the Lord talks about himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Now watch this. You'll see some incredible stuff in this passage. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, will, who, sorry, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I struggle to get my head around that. If you, if you don't see what's going on, there's almost a contradiction in that passage about what God says about himself. You see the problem? He's absolutely holy and he's altogether just. He says he's going to forgive iniquity, that he's going to forgive transgression and sin, but at the same time, that he will by no means clear the guilty. Well, how's he, how's he going to do both? Because we've all sinned. So how on earth is this just, holy, righteous God going to justify sinners? Justify the wicked? Because to do so, for God to overlook sin would be to sin. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike abominations to the Lord. So how is God going to justify sinners without becoming an abomination to himself? It's one of the great seeming contradictions of the Bible. Because if a judge covers up the sins of the man in the dock, he covers up his crimes to the jury and he doesn't let them know and he doesn't punish him according to his crimes, what would we call that judge? What would you call him? Would you say he's a good, righteous judge? Would he be somebody that you want to put up on the, uh, on the dock? No, you would call him a corrupt judge. You would not want that man anywhere near a court. But God is the righteous judge. He is the holy one. And it is humanity who's in the dock. It is humanity who has sinned against him. To be just, God must punish sin. He cannot justify us without dealing with our sins. And there are many, sadly, theologians today who hate that idea. They hate the idea of God requiring justice. They hate the idea of God needing for a payment to be paid for our sins. All you need to do is read The Shack, a lovely, well-written book, but a rank denial of substitutionary atonement, where Jesus pays for our sins. 
Many love to deny this truth. They say, listen, if God's God, he can just forgive sins. He doesn't need a payment to be paid because he's God. He can just forgive any time he wants. That's one of the benefits of being God. You can just choose to overlook sin. But I think we've got to understand this. It misses the point. It misses the point. This, this problem isn't God having to obey a law that exists above him. A law that demands that a payment be made for all sin. It's not him being subject to a law. This idea of a payment, of a substitute, of some kind of sacrifice needing to be made for sin, it comes out of God's very nature. God's holiness and his justice need need to be satiated. They need to be pleased in order for him to declare anybody righteous. He's without change. He can't just violate his own nature in order to make sinners right with him. So the cross... The cross is the one place in all history where God makes this possible. The cross is where this happens. The cross is the same moment where the angel brings a coal and puts it on Isaiah's lips. This is the cross for you and I. Romans 3, 24 and 25 says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. The cross is a display of God's ultimate righteousness. It's where he reveals his righteous judgment upon our sinfulness, upon your sinfulness. Former sins that were not immediately judged, like when Adam and Eve sinned against him. They should have died. In that moment, they should have died. But God let them live on because of the cross. When we look out in the world and we see families happy, going about their business. When we see people having businesses and experiencing good things. You know why that is? The cross. That's the only reason. Why we see good in the world is that humanity should have immediately perished when they sinned. But God knowing in that moment when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, he knew there would be a time when the seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head. He knew that was coming. It had been ordained before the foundation of the world that Christ would go to the cross and would deal once and for all with the sins of man and therefore God could pass over former sins that we did even before Christ came into the world because he knew at the cross they would be dealt with. It's this point in history that all previous history looks forward to and all future history looks back to is the cross. Sin has to be paid for. Christ went to the cross for you. He went to the cross in place of all those who believe on him. John Stott, who wrote an amazing book called The Cross of Christ, he said this, before we begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see as something done by us. Before we see the cross as something done for us, 
We've got to see it as something done by us. What was it that held Christ on the cross? Our sins. That's why it had to happen. I crucified Christ with my sinfulness. It was my sin that held him there. We sing that in the hymn. Canon Peter Green said, Only the man or woman who is prepared to own their share in the guilt of the cross may claim their share in its grace. Do you see that it was you that put Christ on the cross? It was your sinfulness that had nails driven through his hands. It was for you that he hung there. Do you see it? As much as it's true that the cross is about victory over the powers of darkness, as much as it's about victory over death, it's also true that it is actually God dealing with our sin. It's about Jesus being a pleasing sacrifice to God. Appeasing the wrath of God. Because without the cross, brothers and sisters, the wrath of God would fall upon you. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, cruised for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 5.9 Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So when we talk about being saved, you actually ever thought about what you're saved from? You're saved from God. First and foremost, you're saved from God. People don't understand this message unless they've read the Bible. But firstly, before you're saved from your sins, before you're saved from hell, you're saved from the holy, righteous judgment of God against you, a sinner, which was due to you. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to... Sorry, it's Colossians 1.19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. You see, both those passages in different books talk about peace with God. Everyone born into this world is not at peace with God. They're at war with God. They're at enmity with God. You were at enmity with God. You weren't born a Christian. I was having to talk to my girls about this the other day. We we talked over the dinner table about how because they're born into a Christian family, it doesn't make them Christians. Christianity doesn't pass down the family tree. All of us is born a rebel and a sinner, and we must must receive the grace of God if we're to be at peace with him. And that only comes through the cross, which was destined before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible talks about. It it wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident that Christ ended up there. It was predestined before the foundation of the world. 
Acts 2, verse 22 and 24 says, Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Therefore, truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. And Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. We shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Octavius Winslow said, Who delivered Jesus up to die? Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. It's true that all of those sinful men did crucify Christ. They were responsible for it. They were the ones who sinned. However, it was God that gave his son up. Why? Because he loved the world. It was God the Father's love that resulted in the cross. In the cross, we're seeing not just the holiness and the righteousness of God, but we're seeing the love of the Father. And it's so deep. It's so deep. I will never be able to express it with my words. Not even get close. In the bloody crushing of His only begotten Son. That's what Isaiah 53 says. It was the Father's will to crush Him. He chose to crush Christ. So that you would be saved. You personally. We have to see that it should have been us on that cross. That's what this is all about. By rights, it's what each of you deserves for rebelling against God. But your Father, God in heaven, He chose to put His only Son there. And that his only son should take what was rightfully yours to take. He stood in your place so that you might stand in his. I've got a a click track going on my phone now. Yeah, I actually don't know how to stop that. There's a problem with uh, using technology, isn't it? I'm going to turn the volume down there. Maybe that will stop it. Yes, excellent. So, the whole point of the cross is this. Christ took what you deserved. And you did deserve it, each one of you. In order that you would receive what he deserved. It's the great transaction of all of scripture. God satisfied his own need for justice at the cross. Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So that we might be reconciled to God. That's the language of the New Testament. You might be reconciled to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.18-20, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
We're reconciled to God. We're adopted into his family when it's the last thing we deserved. And also, through the cross, we don't just die to ourselves, but we die to sin. We die to sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, You've been healed. And Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when we become a Christian, it's only through the cross. No one comes to God apart from the cross. Nobody. And when we come to Christ, when we repent of our sins, when we recognize our need for it, just as Isaiah recognized his need for God to intervene in that moment when he stood before the throne, we also must recognize our need for the cross. Do you recognize your need of it today? Do you recognize that every time you approach God, it's through the cross? That God loved you in that moment on the cross? It was your sins that he paid for in Christ. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the Victorian era, when he was asked, how do you know you're saved? How do you know you're a Christian? He didn't say, because I'm a great preacher. He didn't say, because of all the money I've given to help orphans. He didn't say, because God has used me to heal people. I don't know if you know that. Charles Spurgeon had a a prolific supernatural healing ministry. He didn't use any of those things. He said, because Jesus died for me. That's how I know I'm a Christian. And that's my question for you today. Do you know that Jesus has died for you? Do you know he died for you? Is it personal? Is it personal? That's the comfort that we have in this life. That's the hope we have in life. It's not the stuff we do. It's not some vague hope in the mercy of God. Oh, he'll, he's a God of love. He'll forgive me. Oh, you know, he's a good father. He's a good father because of the cross. And if our focus and attention in this life is anywhere other than the cross in terms of God and our relationship with him, we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking in the wrong place. Let's glory in what Jesus did for us. And let's recognize that all of our hope is there. All the hope of humanity is in the cross. And if you're struggling with feelings of lack of purpose, if you're feeling a struggle in an area of sin, it's only in the cross that you'll have victory over it. It's like Paul says in Romans, reckon yourself, what? Dead to sin and alive to Christ. That's how we overcome these things. That's where our victory is. It's in the cross. It's in what God has done for us through his son. Let's pray. If you want to stand with me now, if you're able. Father, we thank you that just like Isaiah, who who you provided that burning coal 
in order that he would be freed from his sin, forgiven of his iniquity. You have given us the cross of Christ. You have given us a way to come for you, to come before you and have our sins dealt with. And I pray right now for anybody who has not yet stood before the cross, repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus, that Holy Spirit, you would move upon them right now. Move upon them. Touch their hearts, I pray. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd help us realize that this great transaction where Christ took our sin, it was imputed to him, it was put on him. Just as that happened, you have imputed his righteousness to us. And as we stand before you in Christ, you treat us as you should treat Christ. You ever thought of that? When you're in Christ, it's not just that you're freed of your sin, but God treats you according to how he would treat his only son, Jesus. His love for you is the same love with which he loves Jesus. His enjoyment of you is his enjoyment of his own son. He enjoys you. He loves you. He's put you in an amazing place in Christ to enjoy what Christ should be enjoying, the full adoration of a heavenly father. That's why Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None at all. There can't be because every single one of your sins in Christ is dealt with. All of your failings, all your flaws, everything you've done that's messed up, all of them are dealt with in Christ. And we get to be treated how he deserves to be treated. So we pray, Lord, we'd see this. We pray we'd have victory in this world over our sins through the cross. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing one final song, and then we're going to enjoy some, some time together in fellowship and tea and coffee in the cafe.